the NCAA, the FBI, and corruption in college basketball, and a behind-the-scenes look at college hoop stardom and what can come after it in this new edition of the DMV Sports Roundtable with our regular guys, Jamal Bowens, George Wallace, and Chris Cheon. Our guests are former Georgetown Hoya Rodney Pryor and Ricky Goings of LegendCoalition.com. Ricky is working to make sure today's high school students know about the sports stars who went to the same school years and decades ago. Let's hear from Chris Cheon. Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the DMV Sports Roundtable, where you hear us talk Redskins, Nationals, College Hoops, Wizards, Caps, you name it. We're touching all of those topics here on WTOP DMV Sports Roundtable. We are joined by our friends Rodney Pryor, former Georgetown Hoya legend, as well as Ricky, who was uh, with us with Josh Morgan when he came in here and talked a little bit about Virginia Tech football as well as the culture of the Redskins. Gentlemen, how are we feeling today? Feeling great. Feeling good. Feeling good. Great. So let's start talking about the unfortunate topic at hand here when it comes to college basketball where a lot of us should be focusing on the conference tournaments right now leading up to March Madness but we have some scandals that are involved off the court and want to hear your guys' take on this do you feel that it's overshadowing what has been to me I mean especially here locally where you have George Mason winning three times in a row on buzzer beaters you have an emerging Georgetown program you have schools that are on the up and up I like GW Two has been playing a little bit better, albeit that they lost this past Saturday. So what's your take on the situation here? And can college basketball rebound from this in a quick fashion, I guess? I think they can rebound from it. Just got to be both sides trying to figure out how they can help the students at the same time. Um, you see a lot of pro guys touching base on it. Um, and it's just a tough situation because you know what's going on, but it's like nothing you can really do about it. And some people could say it's it's tough on the recruiting edge for these smaller schools or these these up and coming high major programs, but I mean some of these schools are already established. They're going to get these guys no matter what. It's it's just now at this point they're going to make sure that their guys are comfortable there. So when you when you try to say that it's hurting recruiting and it's hurting the game, it's not really hurting the game. These schools are good. They're going to get good players. But at the same time, you want your players to be comfortable, so I'm sure they're going to go out on a limb and do what everybody else is really doing at this point. Ricky? I, I, think, I think college basketball will, will definitely be able to come back. It just may not be in the form that they're accustomed to. I mean, they're accustomed to a system that don't, necessarily reward the players for what they bring to the table. Now, you know, I understand that there are some – there will be some issues with, you know, what people talk about in terms of compensation and things like that. But just saying that these guys are going to go out there and play and, um, you know, they're not going to benefit outside of, a you know, quote-unquote free education, I think those days are over. Mm-hmm. What I was telling Jamal um, when I was talking to him before the show was, you know, I think to really analyze it, we got to break down the conversation a little more in terms of – you know, what we're really talking about. We kind of merged it all together. Should guys get paid? To me, it's three different topics. It's, you know, should you know should the rules that, that started this been, placed at all, been in place at all? Um, should the coaches be held accountable, players? And, should, and then should players be compensated? So, you know, the fact that Sean Miller, let's say, for example, broke some, broke some rules, um, yes, he has to be held accountable to that. Mm-hmm. But does that necessarily equal players being compensated? That's a separate conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think when they really look at, um, you know, what happened and the proper way to move forward, I think it, it definitely can rebound. I think that when you, it, like Ricky said, there's a whole lot to break down. It leads into a whole lot of different things. Just taking the compensation 
that leads down a whole nother rabbit hole of how you got to break that down because you're not going to pay the basketball players and the football players the same as you know the field hockey team or the volleyball team mm -hmm. all that breaks down differently then it also translates to these big conference schools your acc big 10 big east you know big 12 whatever have you they've got more money than some of the mid-majors and they've got more money than some of the one AA's and hbcus division two II, division three so once you get you know into that there's a whole lot to unpack and figure out and logistically i'm not sure how you really go about doing that because there's you know it's like ricky said before when we talked about this earlier <clears throat> you break down the haves and the have-nots you have the haves in terms of your teams and your programs football basketball being the big money makers then you got everybody else and you got your big programs your big time schools you got everybody else so trying to make that equal across the board is almost impossible yeah certainly george uh, just catching up here as you were covering the end of that Tragic Maryland loss as the Terrapins We're not gonna talk about will it. be heading to, I guess, the NIT at this point. They might have played their way out of that. I wouldn't even accept that. We're talking about be good next year, the off-the-court troubles when it comes to recruiting violations and paying players and whatnot. And some of the takes I've heard here is the issue, not issue, but Title IX, really, and what that does in terms of paying. You can't pay football players a lot of money just because they bring in the most revenue and right. then not pay other schools and other uh, sports at a school. So is the worry here, too, that if we do look at compensating players that we would have to cut programs in these schools, which we certainly don't want to do as well, right? That's got to right. be an issue here, too. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that would, that's, I would think that's probably would be the top. And, and yeah. would that be, I mean, is that something that's been discussed at colleges? I don't really know. I mean, That's a good question. I don't know. I don't think, I, don't, I wouldn't think that they have. They may have had internal discussions behind closed doors or something like that. But in terms of, you know, a board meeting or something like that or the meeting of the uh, athletic department, I don't think it's gotten to that level yet. You know, I don't know personally, but I, that's just me speculating that I don't think it's gotten to that point yet. I think another thing that this also goes into is the one and done rule. Mm -hmm. Do we avoid some of this? Because some of the guys on the list were one and done players. Mm -hmm. Do we just allow the kids that want to come out in high school, they want to go to the NBA and get paid, give them that freedom to do so, take that out of there, then the kids that do go, and you sign a kid to your program, your collegiate program, okay, you know he wants to be there for at least three to four years, or at least two, let's just say that, at least two, that he's committed to playing college basketball, and it's not just a stepping stone to get to the NBA. Why not just let them go? Then also on top of that, the NBA can also put and Ricky mentioned this earlier when we were talking, put more money into the G League. Develop that and make their what they get comparable to what you might get overseas. Because right now it doesn't compare. Guys are gonna go overseas if they can, because they can make more. They can offer more going overseas. But why not have that here and make the G League a real farm system and developmental league? For the NBA, well, that was that was that was the topic this week, right? Yeah. Didn't that come up? 
Yeah, as far as it's come, I said I don't know. As an option, I saw it a few times. Or a and possible solution to it. And we're joined by or Rodney Pryor of the G League. Rodney, you're playing with uh, Sioux Falls right now, if I'm reading correctly. Yes. So, how has been your experience playing with them? Trans or compared to, I guess, your days with Georgetown, probably a little bit of a smaller crowd now, but in terms of being able to support yourself and support a living and continue on your dream of making the NBA, are you able to kind of be able to make enough money where, you know, you're, you've got an apartment, you're able to go out and live, live your life? No, I think the G League is still a form of opportunity. It's nothing that you sit and say, I'm going to play 10 years here. Um, the G League is a format to give you a shot to get to the next level or give you an opportunity to go to some good clubs overseas. Um, we were being paid, I believe, 20000 for five months. You get your uh, living paid for, you get per diem on the road. But, I mean, it's a grind. Like, yeah. some people stay in hotels for their duration of uh, the stay with the team. Um, flights are hectic. Um, flying out of Sioux Falls, I mean, <laughs> there's not too many uh, One in the morning big planes you're going to fly out on. And, I mean, it's two flights every time. Layovers could easily be up to five to six hours wow. of just oh. sitting in the airport. So if you're not mentally, like, engaged to getting to the next level, it's going to be tough on you. It's going to wear on you. And then – you got to go through the ups and downs of not playing. Now with this two-way ruling, those guys get more more leeway on the floor. Um, so it's just all about the player's perception of himself and how he sees himself getting to the next level. But in terms of like making a career out of it, it's going to be tough unless you come from money or you have another way to make money. Some guys play this G League and then go overseas for the rest of the summer, things like that, so they can make a little more money. So. I was going to say, that's got to be the mental thing. has got to be the toughest. Yeah. yeah. To just, you know, I mean, you can commit you commit in college, but, you know, you have your classes and things like that. But I would, I guess with this, it's got to be, yeah, you got to be in, you got to be in it. The only good thing about it from college, if you was con- comparing it, is the free time. Like, I mean, you, yeah. you go to practice, you put your work in, and then, you have the rest of your day, but we're in these remote cities. It yeah, isn't like we're, it's right. not like we're in good cities. So, I mean, honestly, in terms of luxury and style, Georgetown is way better than the G League. Right. Like, in terms of living, we were staying in like four or five star um, hotels, eating at nice um, uh, restaurants and things like that. So, I can see why it's tough for guys that come from high major when they came up through good AAU programs and they were highly touted and then they come out and you don't get the shots you thought you were going to get at the league and then you got to go through the uh, through the G League. It's tough because, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Juco when I went through Juco. I just call it Juco on steroids because now you're playing against the best of the best, but it's still not great living, like not great facilities, things like that. Some teams don't even – like at Sioux Falls, their program is really good. So we have a gym, we have a weight room, things like that. So we could go in and put in extra work. Some programs don't have the the luxury of waking up and just going to a gym on an off day to get some reps up and things like that. So again, it's a grind all the way around. And what Rick was saying about if you could make it an actual league instead of a development league, I think it'll keep guys here. It'll make the league more serious because I feel like sometimes players don't take it as serious, especially on back-to-back nights where you bust in six, seven hours, things like that. So if it became an actual league, guys are making actual money, I think the competition level was sore. I was going to ask, it's, it, that 
you know, I guess I don't want to say the word mail. I don't want to use the, the term mailing it in, but I can imagine some nights you guys probably don't, you know, nights like that, back to back, you don't feel like going out there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And some teams are better than others. I know with Sioux Falls, like they have the background of winning. They won a couple of championships. Uh, we have some really good players. Like we were one of the more talented teams. So on a night to night basis, like we had enough to where if, if some guys wasn't really feeling it, we yeah. can still bring a good yeah, punch. Yeah. But a lot of other teams couldn't do that. Like, if they were coming in off a of back-to-back, it was tough for them to keep up with us. Like, yeah. we were going to blow them out <laughs> in the first quarter, things like that. So, if guys did have that want, that urge, like, oh, I'm, I'm getting good money, or I'm going to have a real shot at the next level, things like that, I think that would help. Let me ask you this real quick. So, when you didn't get the opportunity to catch on in Brooklyn, was the G League your first option to go to, or was overseas first? How did you get to the G League? And that did you weigh the options of overseas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went to Turkey okay. for the, for my first three months after um, summer league, and through the process of my pre-draft, I did it with Drew Hanlon and Pierre Sweat. So I had a, some good momentum behind me, but I uh, suffered an ankle injury during pre-draft, so I was I missed out on a lot of workout opportunities. So Going with Brooklyn, we thought we had a legit shot to compete and try and compete for a roster spot. But I ended up rolling my ankle again while at Summer League, so I wasn't able to play as many minutes that I would like. So in that time, we started to sit back and go, okay, are we going to give the league a shot right now? Like, we know you're not at 100%, or do you want to go overseas right now and play in a really good league that gives you a good resume to come back and try and make a roster and make some good money while you're out there or go into the G League where you're only making right. 20000 to to fight. So at that time, I, we waited and I decided to go to Turkey just because I knew of guys who went over there and played well and were able to come back and get in a good situation in the summer league and potentially make a roster. But out there, the decision is more about the money in terms of opportunity because it's out there is still kind of college basketball but just right. with grown men right. you can right. still pack the lane um there's not much spacing the living is hit or miss depending on what city you were in i was in a um i was two hours outside of istanbul and our city was a little behind in development so it was kind of in what we would call the slums mm. so it's kind of like a culture shock and at the same time, because you're dealing with people that don't speak English. Right, sure. Um, so you're really out there for basketball. I'm 10 hours ahead of the United States. So I, I wasn't speaking to family members or friends until three out there. So all I had to do is lock in. And out there, they work you. We was doing two practices, three hours. You get an individual. You get weights. Wow. And that's yeah. every day. My team, we wasn't EuroLeague, we wasn't um, Euro Cup, so we only had one game a week. We was in first division Turkey with Fenerbahce, Efes, all of them. But Did you practice like that even yeah. during season? Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Five days a week. That's wow. the thing. That's what's tough if you go you to a team. You away with that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you got to do what they say because you're yeah. on contract. And right. over there – They'll cut you with no problems. Sure. You be going. They'll get you back on the first flight. We don't have a players union over there. No, uh, no. It, I mean, you got to go out there and produce. Yeah, like yeah. that's the only good thing about overseas. If you producing, you play. It don't matter how much you making. And um, I think they hold guys accountable that way. But at the same time, it's you get over there. 
and um, you're basically behind a little bit because you're American. They see you as more athletic, like you, mm-hmm. you have advantages. So they let the guys rough you up a little more. You're not going to get as many calls, things like that. So over there is also a mental battle. Challenge and it's just that. how do you see yourself as a player? I mean, if you're money motivated, some teams don't pay on time. So if you're not getting paid on time, are you going to keep working the same way you're working if right. you're not seeing your money every single month? Um, are you motivated by trying to be the best player you can be out there? Things like that. Are you motivated to get back to the States and make the NBA? Things like that. So my faith is what really helped me out there. I mean, it's a grind. Like, we weren't getting paid. Unfortunately, the team didn't have the sponsors that they thought they were going to get. And on a day-to-day basis, it's just everyone's complaining because they want their money. And I had a lot of older guys on our team and they have families. I'm out there. It's just me. Right. Yeah. right. So, I mean, money right now isn't a thing to me. Like I want to keep working, keep getting better yeah. so I can get to the NBA. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was what drove me. And, um, but again, guys that's going out there for money, you're not getting your money. You're going to be upset. Maybe you're not playing well. And then they can use that against you. So that's you right. got to takes a toll. I mean, it takes a toll on your development too. Yeah. What did you, what did you feel was better for you as far as obviously the ultimate goal NBA but as far as I guess facilities and the whole package as far as still trying to keep your game and get ready for the next level here G League or playing overseas like that here in the G League just because of my situations I know guys that go to countries where it's nice they have gyms things like that but where we were at facilities were down Um, so you it was just like in practice was your workouts it was your reps so and we scrimmage a lot. So you you may not get as many shots as you want. We had a really good post I guess player. One game so a week's tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you too, back to your time at Georgetown. We know John Thompson the third no longer with the program. Patrick Ewing there. What was your experience like playing under JT three? Because he was so well regarded for a number of different years, and then the sort of tournament shortfalls sort of came to light, and not came to light, but everybody saw that. Hey, you know Georgetown was a team that, whether expectations are Sweet 16 or Elite 8, but they're not really getting past the first or second round here. Was it fair that JT3 was let go, or do you feel that he could have done more here? What was your experience like playing with under him? Um, again, coming from where I came from, like the JUCO ranks, the mid-major ranks, to be able to have the opportunity to play at the high major level, from my perception, it was a blessing. But at the same time, I know our struggles and Um, our style of play wasn't the best to watch in terms of the generation today. So I think in terms for JT3, it was just tough for him because, again, the expectations, he's won championships there. So that's what's expected on a year-to-year basis. And when you go through these uh, rebuilding years, so to say, when you're not able to attain these top recruits, whatever the reason. And sometimes a lot of that has to do with style of play and things like that. So guys probably shied away just because of the offense that we ran and things like that. But um, during the year, it was tough. Like, you, you're going into crowds, even at home, where the crowd's not behind you. Like, most of our games, people are trying to chant fire JT3. Mm. So... I mean, for us as a unit, it brought us together. We got close. Me and JT3 got close because I, I'm i a man of faith. I've been preaching for the last three or four years, so me and him would have talks about things like that. So me and him were able to get close and just to pick his brain. Like, 
it's just tough. And it, and it's not always on the coach. Like, we didn't make shots that we normally would make mm-hmm. in certain games. And we were in a lot of games. And unfortunately, that's not what's seen. It's only the end result that's seen, the, the win or the loss. So my time at Georgetown was great. I was able to experience the, the best players in the country at the college level. Um, they let me come here as a one-year guy to play my game, allowed me to – lead these guys the way I know how and it's just unfortunate that we weren't able to win games because we also saw ourselves as a top team in the country this year and that that year but we just weren't able to put it together you drive with Jesse Govan you guys play well together yeah uh me and Jesse had a a, a funny relationship out there because Jesse could score um and at that time when we ran to Princeton it was a little hybrid version so we still kind of went through the um the post a lot and and the Princeton, with me being the first year, I mean, it's tough to catch on to an offense, especially like that. So <coughs> to the to the certain eye, I took a lot of tough shots, so to say. But I, although I shot at a high clip and a, a high percentage. Yeah, 18-point average, I see that. Yeah, so me and, <laughs> me and Jesse kind of went at it sometimes where I was taking a fadeaway shot that I probably could have hit him. But, I mean, we pushed each other. Um, but I think he can be a really good player uh, moving forward. In terms of this program, now that it's a new era of Patrick Ewing coming back to Georgetown and trying to bring that old guard back, so to speak, and, and have them be at the top of the Big East and in the, the, the running for, you know, being a contender for a national championship, where do you see this program going forward? Or what have you seen so far this season that, you know, gives you some sort of hope that it's headed in the right direction? Uh, whenever you get a guy like uh, Patrick Ewan coming back, it raises motivation. Right. Guys, when you step in the gym, if you're not feeling it, you're looking across the court at a coach that's a Hall of Famer. Right. Played against Jordan and those guys. So the motivation rises. I know when I was just in the gym to see it, I'm like, man, if I'm out here, I'm going to go hard right. every single second. Although that should be your mindset, but right. I mean, we're humans. Anyway, right. Yeah. And you go to class every single day, but when you see a guy like that in the gym, yeah. if you're if a basketball player, it should motivate you. I think he's going to be able to get the recruiting edge now yeah. that Georgetown hasn't had these last few years. I think the recruiting race is, is huge to get some good players in yeah. there, to get some good talent. Um, Need a point guard, right? Yeah, point guard. definitely. Um, and then just the playing style that they play now, um, he's bringing in the NBA offense to them. Yeah. He treats their practices like an NBA practice. And then just challenging guys – uh, on a day-to-day basis like and then when he's challenging you you got to wake up to the challenge because he's seen it he's been in the league the last 15 16 years coaching so he knows the generation of basketball now and I think with that with him having that he's going to be able to get the kids in there and he's going to get the kids to really work and push themselves to become better players and you know what's interesting the other day I was working the Providence game I think you were there right they put you yeah, on the yeah, screen yeah. The yeah. Nice. so I was working with, with Big John mm-hmm. he was doing the analyst mm-hmm. and he said we were talking about Patrick and he says you know what people don't understand he's he's not a first time coach he's been coaching 15 years in the NBA yeah, he's yes it's his dude. first time as a head man but it's yeah. not as if he's a rookie coach who has no, no he's experience putting his time. Mm-hmm. You know? he's definitely so. put his time in the NBA not was just, it with the Magic the whole time when no 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 he's, Charlotte, he was, Charlotte he's been with different, different Houston, clubs yeah. he's putting his time and in the NBA it's not like he's put it all in college level now he's you know moving up he's he been here? at the top 
Is he here? Was he, was he ever here? here? I think he was here for a quick second. He was, right? Was he? Yeah, yeah. he was. I think he was. For I think a quick so, second. Yeah. That must have been a real quick I mean, second. I don't remember. Yeah, that. I thought mm-hmm. he was. But f- for what you were saying, you can see in that clip that was on Dear, uh, Jesus and Miro and, and, and on the little uh, memes and all that, I think it was Derrickson shot the yeah. oh, one yeah, leg yeah, step yeah, back, yeah. and Pat was like, "Did you work on that shot? <laughs> when? <laughs> when do you work on that?" <laughs> and that's that's that to me. I can see that type of fire for what you said. And if your coach is coming at you like that, like, "Come on, dude, really? You know, you know, you know better than that." Mm-hmm. Like you can be like, "Okay, I can I can roll with that." He ain't cuss him out, you know. He ain't throw chairs, but he let him know. He checked him in a way that, look. Stay within the frame, trying to get you in the right spot. And Derrickson is a very talented player. So he's, he, I can see the way he plays. He's listened to that since then. And he seems like he's gotten much better. Mm-hmm. But I just like his, I like his style of coaching. His first job was with the Wizards when Jordan was playing. Mm-hmm. Oh, two. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, 02 to 03. Jordan was bringing everybody. Wasn't Oak yeah. here? <laughs> yeah, Oakley. Yeah. Bringing Oakley? Oh, he played, right? And he, Brian, uh, yeah. what's my man? Uh, Brian Russell. Brian Russell. Yeah. Yeah, what was, uh, what was your favorite opposing arena to play in? Oh, that's a good question. The uh, Rock, Newark, New Jersey, home of Seton Hall. My favorite team no, was uh, <laughs> Broken Heart he, last he, night. He he uh, uh, Butler was, was good. Oh, I, or, I mean, yeah. Syracuse was probably the best just because well, that of That place is rocking. I can't imagine that not yeah. being pretty yeah. special. Especially playing in the, the Georgetown-Syracuse rivalry. Yeah, right. I think it was about 34,000 35,000 there crazy. that day. And you're playing in a, a football arena, so... Yeah. You walk out onto the court and it's like, are you supposed to play a game in here, right, a right, basketball right. game in here? So, it was that was, that was a fun atmosphere. Um, again, just being at Georgetown and knowing what Georgetown has done in the previous years, it's just a lot of hype and momentum behind that. In terms of playing, you're talking arenas, and some people have had this debate May. in terms I, I of uh, you know Georgetown playing in Capital One. You know, Verizon or whatever you MC or whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. In terms of playing in that, and it's not really, you know, it's not always full, but that experience in, and then playing in McDonough, where you can have more of that student section, college college sort of feel, that home advantage that Duke and, and teams like that have, like the crowd is on top of the other team and it's right there. Do you think, is, is that a better environment? of a home advantage or playing in a bigger arena? I'm going to go with playing in a bigger arena just mm-hmm. because it's not normal. Like, right. a lot of programs are not playing in these right. upscale arenas. And some people could go to say, like, the backdrop behind the rims yeah. are tough to shoot on, things like that. So when you're working on – when you're in there every day, you're used to it. But then mm-hmm. you got teams that's coming from these small gyms or – kind of small arenas coming in there shooting. I think it gives you the fear factor in a sense. So when we're in there, like I feel like if we would have played the team that beat us, Arkansas State and McDonough, like they they were comfortable in there. Like that's their environment versus coming into uh, Capital One and playing us in this big arena and things like that. And I played at the mid-major level when I was at Robert Morris and I know it was a different feel when you went into these bigger arenas when you're ver- versus playing in like these smaller gyms. Mm-hmm. I, I would imagine though the thing that would hurt you would be practice, right? Because you guys, when you don't practice there. No. Yeah, we don't practice there, so. I would think that would be an, a, a, yeah. a factor too. Yeah. But once you put together a lot of games there, yeah, you get yeah, used yeah, to it. Yeah. And sometimes we're able to get in there like a day before a game to shoot around right. and things like that. So I, that helps. But the crowd... 
helps a lot too. But I think as a ball player, when the when the ball goes up, you're locked into the game. It, they do help momentum. Like they do help whatever home team it is. Like when you're going on a run, you can feed stay, off. Of yeah, you it. can yeah. feed off of it. Things like that. But from a sense of shooting and putting the ball in the basket, I think bigger it's arenas. Basketball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And you talked about being a man of faith, too. Was that ever tested kind of when you've gone through some trials and tribulations when you've been overseas and maybe outside of Istanbul and you kind of feel like you're in the middle of nowhere and you're not talking to family or even in Sioux Falls now? Or is that kind of strengthen you to say, I need to be, you know, a, a man here and I need to step up and I need to be strong for my family and for myself um, as I move forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I know when I came out of high school, I was an okay player. Uh, I probably wasn't Division One right away, so I had to take the junior college route. And when I went junior college, my first school, I didn't play a lot, uh, kind of buddy with the coach a lot, didn't really see eye to eye, so I transferred to uh, Cloud County, a, a more upscale uh, JUCO conference. And there I broke my foot the first preseason game. I was out the whole season, and it kind of made me take a, a, a step back and, like, put everything in perception and the first thing I had to do was put my faith in, per in perception to see where I was at that time. To I'm uh, 19 years old, um, I know I have a calling, I grew up in the church so at that time I was wondering like what am I doing with this, like am I going to put two feet forward with this or am I just going to keep half stepping. And then when I did that I was able to get back, I was more emotional, stable. So then I was able to put together a good summer, and I had a good summer at the um, JUCO Top 100 camp, and I started to get some good schools um, recruiting me. And then first practice of my second year at Cloud, my third year of junior college, the first practice I tear my ACL. Oh. So at oh. that point, <clears throat> as being a man of faith, I wasn't taking steps of obedience when I was at junior college, doing things I shouldn't be doing, out partying, drinking, things like that, just not being the right light um, for my faith. And at that time, when I tore my ACL, I literally told myself, I'm going to follow Christ no matter if I play this game ever again. And I think at that point is when I had peace with myself that I was able to be the right light. And at that time, everything just started to make sense for me. And then when I got back, I was fortunate enough to receive a scholarship from Robert Morris, where I went there, had two really good seasons. My junior year, we went to the tournament. We played against Duke. I had a mm -hmm. really good game. Yeah. We won a game versus North Florida in the playing game. Mm -hmm. So when, when I started to see that, I'm like, wow, all it took was just locking into what I need to do with my faith. And again, that's going to church, reading my word, just really trying to be that light that I need to be every single day. So then when I got to Georgetown, it was easy for me to deal with problems, although they were still bad. Like, it's still days where it's just like, man, like, how am I going to get through this? Right. But now that I had that foundation of my faith restored, I was able to get through things differently than I would have done before I took this commitment. And then it helped me tremendously when I went overseas just because I'm in a foreign country, a country that's not of um, the Christian faith. And there was a lot of crazy stories about what they were doing with Christian people that they found. But I just, I just have faith that God was protecting me while I was out there and understanding that 
it's his timing, not my timing. And I think that's a, a tough thing when you're of the faith to understand that it's not what you want all the time. It's what God wants and what he wants to have for you. So just praying and believing that God has the best intentions for me. And when I have that peace inside myself, going through these tough, shaky moments, it's like, okay, it's going to be good at the end of the road. And it's not about having, like, not a legitimate, like, mindset, but you still got to go through the day-to-day grind. You still got to work out. You still got to do this because he's not going to just put it in your lap. You still have to work for everything. So my faith has has been tremendous for me to get me to this point where I'm at today. So Rick, how did how did you cross paths with Rodney? How did how did that relationship you know come to be? Right. It, was, it wasn't it wasn't sweet at first. It wasn't sweet at first. Okay, <laughs> it was. I mean, it was through his uh, his backcourt mate at um, Clemson University, Marquise Reed, uh, who's probably gonna be first team All ACC this year. Me and him got to know each other when he was because out of out of high school, believe it or not, he only had one scholarship offer, which is Robin Morris. So when he got up to uh, Robert Morris, he kept saying, Rick, I got this teammate, man, that can really play. I'm like, I ain't heard of him. He can't be, he can't, he can't, he can't be that good. Who? <laughs> he kept calling me, kept calling me. So, um, you know, I eventually reached out, and me and Rodney got cool. And, you know, when he was going through some of his moments, we stayed in contact. You know, he's really confident, always had a mature way about him. Um, so I remember once he got his release from um, – from Robert Morris, uh, first person I text was Kevin Brody at Georgetown. I said, "Man, I got this kid. You just just check him out." And they had played Georgetown the year before, but right. I was like, "Just just watch the clip." So when he saw the clip, he was like, "Man, I'll be in Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago tomorrow," <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> no kidding. Um, but you know, just getting to know Rodney's been really good because he's a he's an inspiration to me because of you know, despite the stuff he's been through, you know, he never gives up, and that's really good mm-hmm. for the group of guys that. You know, I've worked with over the last couple of years that I've been able to mentor. He's been one that, you know, he's going to figure out a way to get it done and make the most of the opportunities that's given to him. Um, so it's just been great to, you know, be be a part of his journey. <clears throat> I know, George, you missed out on some of the FBI talk we had before. When you were out there, did Sean Miller resign? No, I'm waiting for that, though. Yeah, I didn't mean, have it yet. Oh, that's crazy. They're meeting about it today. I don't see how he's going to coach another game. Well, they... What did the last game? They said, "Nah, you're not coaching." He said, it, "Yeah, he he." Well, now it's maybe not DeAndre Ayton too, right? Yeah, maybe was, a different player. Yeah. So, wow. see, that's a whole. I, but this is not new. You know no. what I mean? Like this has been going on before any of us we hear. Yeah. You know, so it, it's not people want to point the blame at the AAU culture. That definitely does play into it. But it's not like high school coaches weren't doing the same thing, you know, in days, you know, back in the day. But it's this whole thing. And Ricky made a good point. We were talking before about USA basketball and the NBA. And Ricky, you want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at it, it's kind of to me, it's coincidental that in the middle of the FBI investigation, USA Basketball announced they're starting a youth league yeah. at 14 and under. I mean, they for a long time. It, what it is is if you look at some of the other systems overseas and they have the the professional side of it has more of a control on the development process and the, what AAU has done in between AAU and the shoe companies you know the NBA really don't have a lot to do with anything until after they're out of out of right. you have the NBA right. high school camp and all that but they want to rein in 
um, on the development of who, what, when, where, why touches their league, and they want to get some of the guys. That, and, and, you know, to me, it's a double-edged sword. There's some AAU guys out there that really help some kids. There's some that just take advantage of them. Sure. You know, but I think that it's, to me, it's the, the, the – USA Basketball wants to be able to have a their farm, quote-unquote, farm system that produces the guys they can put on an international level because, I mean, let's be honest, the, the, the rest of the world is catching up with us. We don't win all our gold medal games by right. 30 points anymore. And, you know, part of the reason is those guys do a better job of teaching, I, I want to say teaching kids how to play the game the right way. <laughs> no, we yeah, I mean, you got to, now it's, you need that, they, you need the extra effort now. Mm-hmm. You're right. I mean, it's not it's not a nine, you know 1992 dream team situation. No. Mm-hmm. And, and let me ask you two guys this: Is the situation better off with or without AAU in place? Are you for? That's a good question. Having you know AAU, or do we bypass some of this stuff? Not all of it, because like I said, it's happened years upon years. But is it more AAU that's more taking advantage or do you have is the split between coaches that really are trying to get these kids to where they are or are they looking for be, to be placed well, in coaching gotta, jobs themselves we got to separate AAU from circuit basketball okay see AAU is what it was it was non-profit basketball right. it, was, it was you know yeah. normally maybe one or two teams in the area mm-hmm. the best players it's when Nike and Under Armour and yep. Adidas got involved that right. all these things started becoming about. Now you got these handlers from the shoe companies. You yep. got AAU became a business for the adults at that point. Right. When you think about back in the 90s, I mean, guys were trying to find ways to raise money yeah. to get guys mm-hmm. on. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Now, mm-hmm. man, Nike pays for everything. You right. know, Team Takeover has actually full-time positions in their organization. Wow. So to me, that's where it becomes, and not to take nothing away from them, they do a great job with the kids they yeah. have. I'm just saying that's where it becomes, you know, do you want shoe companies mm-hmm. that make a profit at the end of the day right. dictating the, who who does what in basketball? Yeah. Um, so I think that going back to a system where it's not driven by these huge business entities right. may restore some of the integrity. I, I agree with that completely. I think a lot, too, goes with helping the kid make decisions on his own, raising him to understand what's mm-hmm. good, what's wrong, mm-hmm. understand how is this going to benefit me, how is this going to hurt me. Because like you said, you have handlers handling the situation with the kid, yeah. not even knowing what the situation, what it is. So a lot of times kids are just playing basketball and then you have all these other people pulling them this way, pulling them that way, mm-hmm. telling them to do things when they're just playing basketball and sometimes – or all the time the kids get blamed for it. Right. And I think that's what hurts it, too, because now these kids that just want to play basketball, like what AAU used to be, just going out and competing against friends around the around the state and now around the country. So I think – because I didn't play AAU at a high level, and I was still able to get better. The only thing that hurt not playing AAU at a high level was being able to be seen on that right. national mm-hmm. level by right. these top coaches. So AAU, it just makes the race to get these players a little easier at yeah. this point. And when you say handling, it's like they're handling the player. But we also got to give – you know, the parents have to be – involved in Mm -hmm. that because the handlers are handling the parents sometimes Mm -hmm. and if they know that the parent may have you know there's difficulties in the household financially they will try any way to get their way in there Mm -hmm. to do that provide that for the parent endear their trust and then now they're giving the keys to to the child to the to the player so and like rodney said it's not always 
it's behind the scenes and people are quick to blame the player there are there are times where the player did knowingly take money or do something that's against the rules there are also times that it's tied to a parent a family member a coach that unbeknownst to the kid is even taking place and mm -hmm. when it comes back his name is out there and is and he gets the blame and he you know gets the reprimand for that not the person who really initiated it because that's of no fault of his so i mean it's 50 50 you have some that knowingly do it but i think and i'm just y'all can you know jump in there may be more that really don't know what has transpired that they're mm -hmm. getting blamed for yeah mm -hmm. i think a lot of that comes from <clears throat> the topic of educated versus uneducated okay and it goes um deeper than just like school education but i think that has a, a huge part in it for the parents a lot of times we have younger parents raising kids right and a lot of times the kids are more raised by society at this point mm -hmm. the friends they're around right and things like that and you have these guys who are educated that can come in and manipulate the situation, manipulate mm -hmm. their minds. And at this point, when you're in a struggling situation, yeah. you're looking for a situation that's going to help you get out of struggling. And, on, and the guys know that. These guys that's coming in, sure. they're coming in and they can manipulate that whole story to help them believe that, hey, you give me your kid or, hey, you do this or, hey, you go with this agent or you go with this situation you're not going to struggle anymore. Like your kid is going to eventually be able to make you money. And I think sometimes families can get taken advantage because of what they don't know and what they don't understand. And that's when it becomes mm -hmm. yep. more than just basketball, more than just the kid um, being a good basketball player. And I think an underlying, not to get too deep, but there's another underlying fact in some of these kids are in fatherless homes. Mm -hmm. There's not a male figure in the house, and a lot of these coaches or handlers mm -hmm. or whoever are able to play that angle mm -hmm. and come in and be a father figure, set themselves up as a role model, and that way it's easier to manipulate the situation because that child's put his trust in you mm -hmm. because he has no other example of a mm -hmm. male figure that's taking interest in his life, in anything that he's doing, mm -hmm. and, and not even see that just for basketball, because they may take him to the movies and take him shopping or do this and that. Things that a child that doesn't have a father or father figure in a male role model in the household, they long for that. Mm -hmm. So when they get that, they're going to put as much trust as they can into this person because this person will never steer me wrong because the father figure is not supposed to steer you wrong. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's. Not to get too, too deep, but I think that is an underlying factor in all of that. Yeah, and it's just, it goes to whatever that person's intentions are behind it. Are you right. truly trying to help this kid better himself? Are you going right. to help him with life situations? Like, for example, meeting Rick, my success, and I have people back at home that have helped me because my parents weren't heavily involved in, in sports. They were just more concerned of being a good kid, going to school, right. getting an education. So when it came to basketball, I was out in limbo for a while until I had guys that went and played in college, went and played overseas or in the NBA that came back to give me advice, to talk to me about life situations, life after basketball. And a guy like Rick, just someone you can call like when things ain't going right. And he's not going to steer you wrong. He's going to 
tell you man to man like oh, no it's you like you need to get your act together but actually mm-hmm. your best interest in mind yeah too. have your best yeah. interest in mind instead of just saying oh it is a coach you need right. to transfer right. or right. things like that I like about what Rick does he sticks with his guys you know, it's not some of those guys. If you don't, they'll follow you up until yep. <laughs> that NBA check. Mm-hmm. And if that falls through, they're gone. They'll they're out. If, if I, I, I came with you <laughs> to get to the NBA, that, that and if third you didn't phone. get to the NBA, <laughs> and I don't get my cut, I'm gone. <laughs> Rick is the type of person that no matter what, even if you're not even playing basketball no more. He's not going to ban you. High praise there for Ricky Goings. Check out more of his work at legendcoalition.com. Legendcoalition.com. And we thank former Hoya Rodney Pryor for sharing his experiences. He's on Twitter at R underscore D underscore P11. Follow our podcast at DMV Sports Round 1 on Twitter. The DMV Sports Roundtable. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, and WTOP's mobile app. Just tap listen. Thanks so much for spending some time with us again this week.